0: Welcome to Trailblazing Techs, and today we have Sergeant Lee Donovan, who is currently a police officer for the Houston Police Department Special Victims Division and Crimes Against Children's Unit. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And so first thing to ask before we kind of jump into conversation is, you know, due to what's going on in the country, how are you? How are your peer- peers and just kind of the overall <laughs>
1: What's um, going on? We're, we're tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't had a day off, obviously. We've been working nonstop for the last two weeks Um, mm-hmm. our shifts. I'm normally day shift, but I got moved to night shift mm-hmm. um, to help with protests and riots and everything else. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: We're exhausted, but we're encouraged to see that, despite what you see on mainstream media, a um, vast majority of the protests and everybody um, have ended with hugs. Yeah. And everybody embracing each other. Um, so it's encouraging to know that most of the public is on the same page where we just need to come together. Yeah. Um, but at this point, it's one of those, we need to get to a point where you take a deep breath and just kind of <laughs> For sure. You decompress a little bit on both sides, I'm sure. You know, For
0: sure. And so one thing I did want to ask as well, since you normally are dealing with, you know, children's crime related to children and you're kind of on day shift and now you've been moved to night shift, do you, during times like this is your main priority kind of just dealing with the protests and everything going on, or do you still kind of stick to your day job of, of the children's crime and stuff like that?
1: So right now we're on all hands on deck. So mm-hmm. we've all been mobilized across our entire department. So it's almost where most investigations, unless they're the most serious mm-hmm. uh, kind of get put on hold um, until we can get through this crisis. Sure. But I've been moved. We were on protest detail. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been moved to night shift. I work 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., where my normal shift is 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> During the day. Um, our days off have all been canceled. Um, right. So we're there every single day. And it's just to protect the vital infrastructure, whether it's city hall, um, police headquarters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we have a Discovery Green, which is a big park where everybody mm-hmm. meets together in Houston. Um, and then also just to make sure that the protests themselves, that they stay safe. I mean, yeah. we want them They have a right to protest. They should be doing it. Um mm-hmm. So we kind of line the streets and make sure that they have a safe way to do it. Make sure no oncoming traffic, you know, gets thrown yeah. yeah. into them. I mean, that'd be absolutely horrible if somebody decided to do something bad like that. Um, but it's been, it's been pleasantly, I'm trying to find the right way to say it. It's actually been eye-opening and pleasant to see most of the true reactions of the protesters. Yeah. That even in this situation where us as officers, we know what happened was wrong and it shouldn't have happened. And to see most of us embrace and even children embracing us, Mm -hmm. it's actually a lot better than what you'd be led to believe seeing on TV.
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, I think it's very different city to city in Denver. um, I would say kind of the the violent protests are uh, more frequent than in Houston. And, you know, from the outsider looking in it's been actually great to see Houston. I'm from Houston originally. It's the home of George Floyd as well, right. that overall it's been pretty peaceful and it's been very civil. And I, you know, as Americans, right. It's our greatest it's one of our greatest freedoms is the, the right to protest and to speak right. out. And so for the most part, Houston hasn't been in the headlines for anything too outrageous. Um, and so it's been great to see that, you know, people coming together and, sp- and speaking their minds and and speaking and using their voice, but also law enforcement and the public coming together at the end of the day. And we'll dive into this, but you know, everyone being on the same page, looking for a resolution, and, and bettering all of us um, as a whole. And so, yeah. hopefully, hopefully, you know, we can make that progress and and go in that direction. But before we kind of really dive into that type of conversation. You and I have had this planned for weeks uh, for you to come on. We've had to postpone it, obviously, uh, rightfully. (laughs) And um, the original reason that I wanted to have you on was because you haven't been in law enforcement your entire basically adult life. You had a different professional life beforehand. And I thought that was interesting because I feel like a lot of people like go into law enforcement kind of just do it, right? They do it from the get-go. They have an entire career. And so I found it very intriguing that you started off a little bit differently. And so I wanted to talk to you about kind of what your career was before joining HPD. And then why did you decide to take that leap of faith to become a part of law enforcement?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so before I was an HPD officer, I joined when I was 26. Um, but right after college, I went into marketing and advertising and mm-hmm. I was a salesman doing my yeah. thing. Um, I had a great time doing it, met a lot of good friends. Um, but I was at a point in my life when I became 26 years old that I wasn't really feeling fulfilled. Um, yeah. I was, you know, making good money and doing my job meeting, hanging out with friends, but I didn't have a family. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have anything going on. And it's one of those things where when you're a kid, you always dream of being an astronaut. You dream of being a police officer, you dream mm-hmm. of being a firefighter, helping people. Um, yeah. but then through college and listening to everybody you kind of take a different direction because you want to make money and be successful and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just got to a point where honestly it was probably marketing on HPD's part. There was a pop-up ad on one of my things and it yeah. just hit me at the perfect time where I clicked on it. And within two days, they were calling my f- employer at the time asking for an interview and doing background wow. checks. And three weeks later I was in the police Academy. Wow. And it happened very quick. Um, I was scared, nervous, um, yeah because it was just it, it was something I always wanted to do, but I never actually did it, and, yeah. and I finally just pulled the, pulled the trigger and did it, and I gave up my career in marketing and gave up going to suites and taking clients out for drinks and dinner, and yeah you know doing all that good stuff to getting up at six a m going doing physical um PT and going to class and taking tests and, you know, doing yep. that obviously for a lot less money for um, sure. But you're fulfilled. You're I, fulfilled I, I, no. yeah. I mean, and you had those questions going through the Academy, like <laughs> I make the right choice. Is this the yeah. Right yeah. Thing? Yeah. You're, you're getting beat up a lot, but um, without a doubt, I made the right choice.
0: So talk about um, the Academy a little bit. Cause I personally, I know police officers, but not, I don't have close enough relationships with them to really know what their experience was like. Uh, going through the academy so you know what is it like i know you're really kind of starting at the bottom and you're kind of earning your stripes if you will and and all of that so just walk us through you know when you're joining the academy like what are you getting yourself into
1: so with houston and every department's a little bit different and that's, that's one thing that people don't realize is that just because something happens in another part of the country or somewhere else doesn't necessarily mean that we handle stuff the same way here sure um, and that's even true for smaller agencies within Houston. Um, when mm-hmm. you talk about like Bel Air police department and other police departments in here, they have a different process for hiring officers than the Houston police department. Mm-hmm. We actually have a fully functioning Academy, which is like a campus, um, that we go oh, wow. to. Um, and we're there 6 AM to 4 PM Monday through Friday. <laughs> and we're doing yeah. every different type of thing. So you start with PT. So do we have physical requirements you have to do for running and push-ups. Yeah, but then you're also learning, um, the criminal code of proceed, um, the CCP and the penal code and taking tests and learning every different part of it, but then officer safety and all the Mm -hmm. different stuff involved. So it's almost like a crash course for college in six months. Um, so it's six months long um, to go through it. You're not a peace officer while you're doing it at the very end of the academy. You take the test to actually get certified with the state to, you know, be a peace officer. Um, but a lot of it's geared toward Houston and how we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, looking back, I was like, this is the worst time of my life, <laughs> you know, going through that. Cause it's just long and hard. And you know, at that time you're not getting paid very much. So you're like, is this right. worth it? Um, but because of what Houston does, we are, I would dare say one of the highest trained police departments in the nation, mm-hmm. um, between what we do, the Academy. And then after that, how much training we have to do per year, just to keep up our licensing. Sure. And actually demands that we do more than just the minimum requirement. Um, so we do a lot more training um, mm-hmm. for different people, multicultural issues,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, consumer um, training as far as dealing with people with mental health.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a huge topic right now is mental health um, going through this country as well. Sure. So it was long and strenuous and hard. And then you also, I mean, most of us right now get our, our idea of police officers either through ones you met at school when you were a kid or – um Movies and TV,
2: yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Going, going through the academy, you start to realize that all the CSIs and all the Law and Orders and everything else—they eh, kind of embellish a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. <laughs> and that's not really how it works. But um, it is very eye-opening to go through that.
0: Um, yeah, for sure. And you said that your wife kind of jokes that you're uh, speaking of Law and Order, uh, basically <laughs> exactly. Stabler. Yeah, I like yeah, it. She,
1: she makes she makes a joke because when I did become a police officer, one I wanted to do was always investigate um, crimes against children. Um, so when I first started, it was called Juvenile Sex Crimes. Mm-hmm. Since then, we've changed names, um, yeah. and changed divisions and who's, who we report to and all that good stuff. Um, but I always want to do that because the children are the most vulnerable of our society, if you ask me. Um, yeah. And so that made, a, made sense to me. It's what I wanted to do. Um, anybody that hurt a kid, I really didn't want to have in our society. <laughs>
0: I agree. Um, I agree. So and, so, I my career. and so when you um, completed the academy, you graduate, I assume. You graduate from the academy. Um, once you graduated, um, I assume you don't just jump into children's crimes. You kind of have to navigate that way. So once you graduated, how did you kind of navigate your way from, you know, being a rookie and starting out and then getting to where you are as a sergeant and working in, you know, crimes against children?
1: Okay. Um, so another thing about being in a department of our size is that you pretty much have unlimited ways you can take your career. Um, nice and what you want to do. There's so many different divisions, so many different proactive and reactive divisions. Um, but for everybody coming out of the police academy, you have to do three years on the street. Mm, uh, okay. Now, the friends I made on the streets um, were, are still my best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you just build a camaraderie with people when you work together every single night. And I stayed on night shift for three years. Um, we all stayed together and worked together.
2: Mm-hmm. And we had
1: a power shift. So our days off were Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but we worked Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. Yeah. Shifts um, in some of the worst parts of Houston. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we just did it together. Um, and then from there, I knew I wanted to go into investigations. So the second I did my three years, I went to investigations.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. At
1: first, I went to a division called investigative first responders, which is basically uniform detectives. And mm-hmm. so we're riding around with patrol and start the investigation immediately when it, when it happens. Got it. But it's it's more geared toward like family violence and robberies and, you know, crimes where it just occurred and we can show up and start. Yep. Um, But I always wanted to do this. So the second I got there, I was only there for about nine months. And then I moved to juvenile sex crimes. Got it. It was 2000, the end of 2011. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're, when you're going out there and you, you know, you kick off the investigation and again, my reference to police (laughs) officers is law and order pretty much. So when you're on, when you're kind of on scene, then does the person in like the fancy suit come on and then they're the ones, you know, really doing,
1: okay. We we are the fancy suit people, (laughs) but but all we deal with is crimes against children. Um, So anytime there's a child that's been physically or sexually abused, um, my detectives will be the ones to send out. Um, right now, actually, I'm on call 365 every day, every night yeah, yeah. for child fatality. Oh, and wow. so um, any child in Houston that passes away under the age of seven, um, my unit takes. So I'm, I'm the first call that we'll get from the police department. I coordinate with all the officers who go out, but my detectives are the ones wearing the suits, going out and starting yeah. the early investigation um, so that- for either child physical, sexual or um, child death.
0: And so, I mean, that's some pretty heavy stuff. Um, I'm sure you've seen s- some awful things. I-, I can't even imagine. But, you know, when you work in something that can be as dark as, you know, crimes against children, w- w- when you go to sleep at night, you know, what, w- what is your fulfillment? What is your favorite part? I know you like to protect children, but what are the moments where you're like, wow, you know, what I'm doing is really making a difference and I'm helping these children and stuff like that?
1: It's when you can get to the next step and that's mm-hmm. like once I've completed my investigation and I've actually gotten charges um, mm-hmm. for me though, personally, it's getting a confession. Yeah. Um, getting that person to truly admit to what they did to that child and how they hurt them. Um, yeah. Cause that's pretty much the only way to iron seal a conviction
3: <laughs> Yeah,
1: in court. You know, because even if I arrest the person, I mean, this is America and you have your right to jury trial and everything else. So just because I charge the person doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be, you know, locked away or in right. time a right. plea deal or whatever it may be, but the getting a confession basically puts a nail in the coffin.
3: Yeah.
1: So the techniques that we've developed and use on a day-to-day basis, um, to help those confession rates and help people, um, get through it. That helps me go to sleep. Um, yeah. Being able to teach at the academy, at the police academy on officers, on how to handle children, on how yeah. to handle those investigations is good. Um, and that's obviously, obviously a natural progression of my career. Um, when yeah. I was, just a detective, and I was the one that was actually out there wearing my suit doing everything else. Um, you know, I wanted to catch the guy. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. your main career, police officers catching him and putting him in jail. Um, now my career has kind of transitioned to where I'm in a leadership role. Yep. And I get fulfillment now and seeing my officers do the same thing I used to do. Um, yep. Getting them to where they're happy and coming to work, getting them to where they want to keep working to make sure that our children are safe. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I say make our children safe. It, it's, it's at a point now where we're obviously reactive. So when we get a call, it's because something bad has already happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're trying to come up with new programs and stuff where we can start getting out in the community to get kids involved to where they can talk more, where they're yeah. not afraid to come and speak forward. So we can start identifying things before it happens to help the children get to that point where they don't feel horrible about speaking out. They don't yeah. They know it's a problem and they, they feel comfortable telling a teacher or telling a nurse or telling their parents or telling whoever it could be. Um, and try and get more on the, the proactive side instead of just the reactive side. Because yeah, and the, the sad part I've, is what we do, there's there's already a victim. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the child's already been hurt um, by the time my detectives get there. And so then it turns into a point of um, getting the help they need to try and live a fulfilling life after their trauma.
0: Right. The trauma and the downstream effects that, you know, impact every child completely differently is... I think one of the most gut-wrenching things about it, because you might capture the guy and convict him and he's put away, but that kid has to live with that forever. And so I think, I think being proactive and giving kids a voice because everyone has a voice, but sometimes kids don't know that because they have, you know, different authoritative figures in their life and they're not sure, you know, will someone get in trouble or is this the right thing? And so I think giving kids that avenue of, of a voice and, who are the appropriate people to talk to, whether if it's not your parents or if it's not someone in your family? Is it a teacher? Is it a police officer that you 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 see in your neighborhood? Um, so I think that's great. I, I've, I've been seeing some nonprofits that work with children as of late kind of work in that same um arena, if you will, trying to give kids the tools, the strength, and also just the overall resources of speaking out when something is wrong, uh, so you don't get too far down that path. um,
1: Yeah, and most most police officers, especially the ones that work in my division, um, I mean, we got into this because we do care about children. Yeah. Uh, We care about this. And my wonderful wife, she's actually on a board for a nonprofit um, called Houston Angels, and and they help support foster children nice um, here. Well, one of the things that we're trying to do because my wife and I try to work together on this stuff is that um, we're going to try and engage a lot of my officers as mentors um, to, in the community for these children and then give them an outlet to have somebody to talk to, somebody yeah. to and also show them that, you know, police officers aren't always what you see on TV. That we are here to help. We're not here to just put people in jail. Mm-hmm. Like, we want to make the community better and safer and, and we can't do that alone. The know, right. way we do that is through community and police working together Yeah. Um, where they feel comfortable talking to us and we're there to protect them when, when bad stuff happens, because there is bad stuff that's going to happen. We just got to work together to try and minimize it.
0: Yeah. And actually another nonprofit in Houston, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, they have a program Bigs in Blue, and it's kind of building the community together, right? Learning from each other, solving problems together, not making it, you know, public versus law enforcement. Um which I kind of, it'd been going on in Houston for a while, but I feel like I had left Houston by the time it really started to catch momentum. Um, But I think that's great. I think, you know, that is a solution. We'll definitely get into, you know, what is to follow after, you know, the protests die down and, and what changes come. But you know, I think the resolution is that we do have to come together in some shape, way or form. There's going to be very hard conversations that need to be had and honest conversations and then honest conversations and reflection on yourself. Me as a citizen, right? What I can do. And then law enforcement also, what can we do better? And I think as a whole, we, sh- we all should always try to strive to be better. Um, now, the question is, what comes next, Right. Okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't have those answers, but that's kind of why I wanted to, you know, I won't lie. Like when we were originally having our scheduled conversation, I was like, the timing of this is uh, <laughs> wild. Like that was just kind of where I, where I put it. But I know based, we don't know each other personally, but I, we have a mutual friend and I know you're a good guy and I know you, stand for the right things. You obviously are protecting children. You care about your community. And I know there's a lot more like you. And so that's why I still wanted to have you on um, and to have some of these conversations. And so now that we've kind of learned about your backstory and kind of your career as a police officer and you're now currently a Sergeant, so great career. And you've definitely climbed the ranks, if you will. I think we do need to dive into some more serious conversations. So you have been moved to night shift with uh, the protests and you, you said overall that they've been pretty peaceful at the end of the night or the end of the day, it's kind of, you've gotten a hug or a handshake or something where, where it's not hostile. And so I think to me as someone who watches the news and is just following, that makes me happy because that means we are trying to work towards something together. Now with the death of George Floyd, and I wanted to give you kind of the opportunity to speak as a police officer and as someone in law enforcement. When you look at that video, you know what? What do you see? And 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 ha- what is your response to how George Floyd was handled?
1: I mean, it's gut wrenching. Um, yeah, my wife actually watched it together, and you know, it brought tears to her eyes. Yeah, and you hear a grown man saying he can't breathe and calling out for his mom. Um, yeah, that's that's just it's hard to hear. It's gut wrenching. It's not something that. Should ever have happened, um, just point blank. It should never mm-hmm. have happened. Um, when somebody's in cuffs, ready, and our job is to serve and protect. I mean, even when we get into a shootout, we're trained to after you shoot somebody, go up there and start CPR. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. it's not necessarily we're not there trying to hurt somebody. So if somebody's calling out like that, whether you believe them or not, you have a duty to try and do what you can to help them. Yep. Whether they've committed a crime or not, you know, our, our goal is a peaceful resolution where everybody goes home at the end of the night. Um, right. And that wasn't done. Um, right. It was hard to see. It really was.
0: And so let me ask you this, because, you know, once you subdue a suspect or a person of interest. What should follow? Because, you know, he was on the ground and the officer's knee was in his neck. What what should be done? Right. Obviously, you don't need to sit on someone's neck for almost nine minutes.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, So. I don't know protocol. Like, what what are you guys kind of taught? And I know it could be different from department to department. But kind of, what are you taught once someone is subdued? Then what? Because I've found myself just asking, why was he on? Why was he down there for so long with someone on top of him? Like, there had to have been another solution.
1: Well, and there was. But and it's it's always hard to Monday morning quarterback when the yeah. only thing I have is the video that's there. Hundred um, percent. But from what I can tell, just on the limited video, I mean, he was a bigger man. Uh, mm-hmm pretty tall, pretty, you know, muscular. Um, but from what I heard, it was that he didn't want to get inside the police car because he was claustrophobic.
2: Okay, uh,
1: That's just what I heard. Again, that could be completely off base. Yeah. But that still doesn't call for you restraining him like that. You know what I mean? Right. If he's laying on the ground in handcuffs, he's no longer a threat. Right. Searched him. There's no weapons. There's nothing else. So even if he's kicking and flailing around, what is it hurting? Yeah. Um, now, at some point, though, because he is in custody, you're going to have to get him into the police car. right. <laughs> right. You obviously can't just let them lay there all day. You know what I mean? Right. Now, a knee to the back of the neck is obviously not protocol for anybody. Got uh, it. I mean, it's not. I, I can't remember one thing in teaching to do that. Now, there is a difference, too, though, when you're talking about getting somebody into custody. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, you get some law enforcement. Yes, we've done that before. We've had you know, We've had to do that before. I, like, I understand. But that's when a big man is fighting you and you don't have him in handcuffs yet. Yeah. And you're having to hold them down to actually get their arms behind their back and put handcuffs on. He was already in custody. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't see a need for that um, at all. But from there, I mean, the only thing you can do, we're taught in Houston, especially, to de-escalate situations. You know what I mean? And a lot of that you can do with your words. Yeah. Right? And you know, everything else. And treating somebody with civility. Yeah. Yes, he committed a crime. That's fine. He still has to be gone to the jury, you know, go, go in front of a jury, go before a judge and everything else. We're not judge, jury, or executioner. Right. Um, but it sounded like he was having a, a moment where he was freaking out about getting inside the car because he's claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. So let him sit there for a minute and calm down. Yeah. You know I mean, like yeah. There's, there's situations now that that's me giving me again, Monday morning quarterback in the perfect scenario and given just the limited information I saw. Yeah. I wasn't there for what was said while he was walking in the car. I wasn't there if, you know, through the whole situation up until that point, all we saw was that little clip Yep, um, with him already there. So I don't know whatever led up to it. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from what I saw, I'm almost hundred percent confident. There's no way I would have done something like that. Yeah, and people I work with, the good men and women out here on the streets right now, I haven't seen one of them justify what he did. Yeah, so I can't really. There's nothing to condone putting yeah. me up the next one season in custody like that. For um, sure, for us. For my size, and I'm a big guy, my partner was a big guy too. Yeah. We would have just picked him up. I mean, <laughs> lean him against the car and talked to him. Like, okay, well, then what if we get you a bigger vehicle? What if we do something else? Or this is only going to be for a short ride. I mean, yeah. you start talking to them like a normal person. And typically, when you start lowering your voice, their voice gets lower too. I mean, it's just, it's a, you know, de escalating the whole situation.
0: Right. And I think, I think that's important. You know, okay, he committed a crime. Got it. But, he's not, a, that doesn't necessarily make him or it doesn't make him any less human. Right. Uh, he, he has uh. his rights. You know, you're doing your job as a police officer. And then it's also your job to, like you said, de-escalate the situation. And it just seemed like that went completely out the window, Agreed. which was, which I honestly have not watched the entire video. Cause I can't, I, I personally cannot like watch someone die. Um, even if it was my worst enemy, I, I just can't do it. But it just seems that some of the fundamental things that you are probably taught in the academy seem to have went out the door and and we kind of talked about that there was two other officers right that were like on their fourth day
1: yeah that's horrible
0: yeah put in a very tough situation so one thing i did want to ask you is you know their in the terminology would be their commanding officer correct
1: well, for him, it was their training officer. Training One, officer, and he was he was he was their trainer. Um, so, got it. It's not necessarily that he's their commanding officer. Usually, when you think commanding, it's usually somebody at a higher rank. Got it. He, he's the same rank as them. He's just their training officer um, to try and. And so, like here in Houston, we did our six months in the academy, and then for the next six months, we're actually doing field training. Mm-hmm. So I was assigned um, a, um, a trainer on day shift, a trainer on evening shift, and a trainer on night shift. And then we had two weeks of evaluation with a different trainer. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a long period of training that goes on here in Houston. I don't know what they have in uh, up in Minneapolis or Minnesota mm-hmm. on how their procedures are. And so yeah. that's why I can speak to our procedures. Sure. You know, that what that was, the knee on the back of the that, that is no possible way. That's in our training at all. Right. Um, choke holds are not in our training. There's nothing okay. that's all out the door. You know what I mean? Um, so I can't speak to how every individual law enforcement agency does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know that that is not acceptable here in Houston.
0: So speaking of that, so law and different agencies do things differently. So as you mentioned, chokeholds are not in your training. And one thing that I've just seen people calling for with some reform is saying, you know, chokeholds should be no more. And so obviously where you are, they are no more. So how does change come about? Like I have no concept when, when you guys are creating protocol and how to handle situations, do you know who creates them? you know are are these things voted upon? you know how does change really come about when we talk about law enforcement it, I just have no concept
1: yeah, so for us, I mean all of our they're called general orders, um, and for our general orders, those are changed by you know anybody can write a change anybody can do anything, but it's all approved by the chief of police, and then through our legal services, obviously to make sure that anything in our um, general orders doesn't violate the law or yeah yeah, yeah. You know, so an attorney's attorneys have to get involved to make sure it's right. Um, but what I've noticed through law enforcement with everything else, and Houston has actually done a great job of being proactive on it. And that's where we go back to the proactive and reactive, yeah. um, of getting ahead of the curve um with that type of stuff. When you see stuff like even in New York with Eric Garner and everything else, um when there's a problem, our leadership has tried to get ahead of it and make those things illegal before something bad happens here. Yeah to get redress training and make sure their officers know this is not okay. Um, and so let say if a policy change does happen, um, it's sent to every officer and we have a, a way we have to track it where we have, they make sure we read whatever changes, you know, yeah. happening. But then if it's something big, um, we get, they make a class and we have to go to the academy during our training cycle, which is runs from, you know, all year long and take an eight hour to 16 hour or 40 hour class on whatever the topic is that we have to change.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we've had stuff, you know, cause dealing in a city like Houston, we're the most, I think they're going to name it the most diverse city <laughs> in America. I mean, we we've got every race, creed, every nationality we're separate. There's no vast majority of who actually lives here. Yeah. And our leadership has done a good job as far as making our police force resemble our citizenry. That's awesome. We have a very diverse police force where there is no true majority. Um, You know, we're actually, it's a, we're minority majority where (laughs) if you had all the minorities together, they're the majority, but across the board, there's no one ethnicity that is a true, you know, over 50%. Um, And so it's a true representation of our city. And that, that means a lot. You know, we, we just come from different backgrounds. We have different ideas. And so we're trained on multicultural issues. We're trained on how to deal with people because Mm -hmm. just simple interactions, the way you and I do it may actually offend somebody from another culture. And, yeah. Um, when you're even talking down to the simplest thing is making eye contact. In some cultures, that can be a sign of disrespect. Yeah. And so we have to go through trainings to help us recognize those things to where if you're on a scene and somebody's getting agitated, it may not be because of anything other than they think you're disrespecting them because you're making eye contact. And Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
1: And so we try and get ahead of it and learn those things as much as we can from the public. But the only way you do that is learning from the public. Yeah. <laughs> ideas is back and forth where we're kicking off each other. And we actually do have a police oversight board you know, with civilians and everything else that help out because we can't do this on our own. Yeah. Um, our union, we have um, our union leader does a great job of trying to get stuff out there, be ahead of it. And then if there is an issue, our leadership within the police department, because there's two separate entities, do a great job of addressing it and making sure that it's disseminated to all of us so that we know what we need to do moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you're you said the basically the people that kind of put the changes into action is the police chief and kind of like your legal counsel. Right. So how does how does one become a police chief? Is that something that you kind of just climb the ranks or is that a voted kind of thing
1: from again here in Houston? I don't I would assume that being an actual police chief is pretty central across the United States. Um, But here it's an appointed position by the mayor. Oh, okay. But the chiefs that are under him, so our executive assistant chiefs, the assistant chiefs of the department for Houston Police Department, all rise Mm -hmm. to the ranks. Got it. They come from within. Um, But then every time we get a new mayor, they get to appoint whatever chief they want to run their police department. Mm -hmm. Um, So currently we have Chief Acevedo, and he was brought in from Austin to run Houston. Yeah. Um, The one we had before that was Chief McClellan. Um, He rose to the ranks of HPD. And it. so it's up to the individual mayor when they get elected who they want to appoint. So sometimes it comes from within, or sometimes it comes from the outside. Got it. it just a yeah. puzzle.
0: And I think right now, like when we're having conversations of change, there's many different ways that change can come about, right? And we have an election coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, that is for the president, but each state <laughs> and, and lo- uh, localities have their own elections as well. And I think people forget that their votes do impact change, especially on a, on a state and local level, right? You know, who okay. you vote in as mayor. Awesome. <laughs> who you vote in as mayor impacts, you know, who your police chief is going to be. And so I think that's something that's getting a little neglected, my, me personally, in the discourse about what do we do next? You know, we're, we're talking, we, we talk do? about the election that's coming up and the presidency is important, but there's a lot of other more local and state level things that can impact you and your community, in in my opinion, in a greater fashion.
1: You, and you so- said it. You said it perfectly. I mean, that's yeah. the local elections to me are, a thousand times more important than whoever is the figurehead of the United States. Yeah. You can have overall policy change, but if you want to make your community better, yep, the people in leadership positions here are what matters because they affect our day to day. Yep. He may affect my taxes at the end of the year or you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your military strength or whatever that case may be. But if you're actually looking for an impactful change in your community, looking for the federal government to do it is just it's wrong because I'm sorry, the, the communities in Denver are different than communities in Houston. Yep. So getting people in positions here that are looking out for the best interest of Houston. And that, that goes along from the judges that we put into office to the district attorneys. I mean, the police chief is important, but that's all determined on the mayor. Uh, So He has the right to put that person. So who you put in as mayor is going to influence who, who they put in that position. So yes, they're appointed, but they are elected because (laughs) whoever you elect as mayor is going to be the one to put in the the chief. Um, But the local elections are so much more important. But even when you talk about congressmen that are in the House of Representatives and everything yeah. else, stuff that you can control here, and those people rallying for you in Austin to get the, the federal tax dollars to help our schools, to help every our roads. I mean, every different thing. But it's yes. the local people that make that difference. Yeah. Everybody in the United States is getting so crazy about the presidency, and it's because that's the one that's on the news. That's the one that's the figurehead.
0: Yeah, and and now like it's you,
1: here. <laughs> if you want to make a change in Houston, it starts here. Uh, yeah. You know, You're not going to legislate in Washington, D.C. how we treat each other here. Right. It's got to be coming from us here.
0: Right. And I think, I think, again, that goes back to kind of the working together, right? As a, as a people or a populace, right? You put someone in a powerful position to do the right thing and to make the right decisions. And so, you know, like you said, judges, DAs, like I think people really forget about those people and those, all those people also greatly impact our communities and, just the overall community right who who is being charged who is being convicted who is and and how are we going about that and so i think those are such important people that we should all pay more attention to it's really easy right you get your ballot you're kind of like oh all right cool so i recognize that name right. uh that you person's it, you know the right party, the party that i identify with okay but i think I'm hoping this year and and for the coming years that we see a massive increase in paying attention to local, local politics because it will impact. And I think that is one of the, I think, I think protesting and, and, and using your voice is a great way for change. And then the second thing I think is going to the polls and putting the people in the right people in the positions of power
1: to I agree. better I, our I agree communities. Be, but I think it should be about the person. Um, I think that one yeah. of the things that is going on right now is that we are so dead set on the D and the R, the yeah. Republicans, like that means anything, um, when it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. I have plenty of friends that are on the different end of me that we can sit down and we'll have wonderful conversations about what direction we think this country should go. Yeah, But because of the D next to a name or an R next to a name, there's, there's just a, a cringe when you start talking about it, when there shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, when you talk about people like judges, uh, political affiliation should have no bearing. Should on. not matter. It should I not agree matter at all. It should be based on your voting record and what's important to you. You know what I mean, yep. or even how your judgments on how you on how you're doing something. But that should yep. have no bearing, especially when you're talking about a criminal court of law yep. or a criminal court of law. Like there shouldn't be a DNR next to anybody's name on that. It should be who we think is the best person for that job.
0: I agree. And Uh, I think I think there's there's I think there's a lot of positions that you could say that politics don't matter. But I especially think when it comes to judges, attorneys, I think law enforcement, military does not matter. Right? We're protecting the people. We're protecting the community, and it does not matter if we're Democrats or Republicans or Christians or not or whatever. Right?
1: That should matter. It should be based on the person. Um, But it seems like we've we've made it to where anytime you go to a ballot box, there has to be one or the other. Yeah. With a, with a party with a you know bipartisan thing like this, you can either do one or the other. It's one that you're either over here or you're over here. When in reality, most of us in America are here. You know I mean like yep. we're <laughs> we're here. We, we may be, you know, a little bit liberal on one side and a little bit more conservative over here, but then if you rally behind this person, then you're this way. If you rally behind this person, then you're this way. You're that yeah. way. It's just not true. Yep. Um it's it's not. Yep, uh, and,
0: and I and I think you're I think you're spot on about it. And and I think you know, the ability to have conversations um, is important. And to sit down with people that are different than you and have different opinions than you. I think right now we hear a lot of like cancel culture or someone is canceled. And I think that's actually detrimental to progress because let's say you have something that I completely disagree with. Well, me completely shutting you out I don't think benefits you doesn't benefit me. I don't get to learn why you think that or why that's your opinion. We don't get to have the dialogue. And I think we're forgetting the importance of having the dialogue and having the conversation. You know, quite frankly, this is this is not at least for me, this is not an easy conversation to have because one, I don't know enough about law enforcement. Two, I'm a human being. So I feel for someone who Is wrongfully killed for one. And, you know, it puts you in a tough position because you are in law enforcement and and you guys are being painted in a pretty negative picture when in reality, more often than not, you guys want to help. And like anything, there's always going to be people who take advantage of situations or don't do something correctly. Um, And it's unfortunate. And those people should face punishments. And we're going to see those police officers charged and we're going to see them face their face justice will be served and and i think we were talking before we came on camera we were talking about how all four have been arrested correct
1: i believe so yes Uh, obviously i think chauvin was obviously charged with a higher crime and a little bit lesser
0: right and so they've been arrested and you know the the judicial system in general right is not the fastest process in the world and we we're in a pandemic, right? So l- I don't want to say lower expectations. That's not the right word. But the expectations of how fast this will move needs to be adjusted just a little bit. And again, I think part of it comes from watching TV shows. You watch 45 minutes of Law and & Order, and you, they find someone, they, yeah, they put them in custody, a trial is done and then they go away to jail that's in 45 minutes. And so (laughs) these things take a long time. And so I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about kind of once someone is charged kind of what happens. And then you mentioned that, um, certain cases go to grand jury. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm speaking based on here in Houston. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. What I've talked to other agencies, they're the same way as well. Um, any law law enforcement death, so an officer involved shooting or anything else, whether the person had a weapon or didn't have a weapon or whatever the case may be, everything is gathered. So all body cam footage, all external evidence, all statements, everything, um, which takes forever. And then it's all presented to a grand jury where they decide if they're going to go through with charges or not. So they either true bill or no bill. Okay. Um, and they did that. And this is where you get caught in that, you know, Catch-22 because that was put in place to help stop people from judging law enforcement and saying that we were just covering up for our own tracks. Mm-hmm. We were just, you know, we, we were looking out for our own and not charging people. Well, this was put into place to stop that, but yet that sentiment is still there, thinking that we're only doing, we're having a third party make the decision on whether charges are coming or not that are not related to law enforcement. It's citizens mm-hmm. from the community that make up the grand jury. mm mm-hmm. Um, and so that was done to take it out of our hands to where they can't say that we're protecting our own, mm-hmm. but now because there's no instant gratification and it's not happening quick enough, yeah, we're getting charged with the same thing where it's, you're trying to cover something up. Why haven't you released the camera footage? Why haven't you done like, well, this has to go before them before we do all that. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I really do think that the attitude is there that we're trying to make this work, but nobody has the true answer to make everybody a hundred percent happy. Yeah. But as long as you're trying to do it with the right frame of mind, there is nobody. And I promise you, nobody that hates a dirty cop more than me or any other law enforcement officer. They make us yeah. look bad. They put my life in danger when I'm out there because of what you said. They associate me with that person now. Yeah. Um, and so anybody that's done anything illegal like that. I've had some of my classmates from the academy arrested and that's fine. They did some illegal stuff and they need to go to jail. Like, yeah, there, there's we are held to a higher standard and rightfully so. And that's perfectly fine. And I accept that. But the good old boy mentality is not what it was. There's no covering up for other law enforcement, law enforcement officers. There's no taking care of our own. If somebody messes up to that level, they're going to jail and they're going to be held accountable. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I do notice is with this culture. Now we're looking at when I was talking about instant gratification, it's also, we are more connected, but more disconnected than ever. hundred percent. we, we we rely on Facebook and we rely on these forums to actually communicate with each other. When you lose so much meaning when you're typing, instead of having a face-to-face conversation and seeing somebody's body posture, seeing, or hearing their tone, you just see the words written out and it comes across. However, your own bias takes it
3: yeah, in <laughs> yeah. that
1: direction. And then I think it adds more fuel to the fire, having so much connection, but being so disconnected um, with what's going on in this whole climate. Um, I just, I wish I had the right answer.
0: Yeah, uh, I, uh, I no. I appreciate I appreciate your candidness and your your raw honesty and and like you like I said earlier, like I was I was a little nervous having this conversation at this time, but I kind of was like, no, this has to happen right now. This has to happen. We can't just like talk about oh, how's your career at HPD, right? Like mm-hmm. that's great right now. <laughs> uh, Like people would be like, wow, what a missed opportunity. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to continue with the this conversation and I'm glad we're having it. I've learned, I've learned things, right? Like there's things that I, I did not know about law enforcement. And so I'm now glad that I've been at least educated. And I know at least from a Houston standpoint, what you guys are doing, I would assume there are similarities, but there are things that differ.
1: There are. Um, and the other thing that people realize is that like, we are a major city. Um, yeah we, we do have the ability of having our own academy. We have yeah. you know all these things that we can take care of where there's so many municipalities across the United States that don't have the funding or they only have ten officers total yeah, the whole department, so getting an academy together for them that, that's just not feasible um,
2: yeah
1: that 's true, not in the smaller department's budgets, or you're even talking when sheriff's departments or <laughs> like these other municipalities in other areas they do something completely different as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there's just, there's no way to have one, you know, one shoe fits all or one glove fits all. because Yeah.
0: I mean, especially, you know, you talk uh, Houston and Denver are very different cities in general. Um, and you know, one thing I was, I was talking to my boyfriend about it yesterday that I think the re and I'm sure there was some unrest in Houston, but overall it's been rather peaceful. And I think that actually speaks volumes to the leadership in Houston. Um, all different types of leadership, whether we're talking about law enforcement, whether we're talking about the mayor, whether we're talking about some of the, you know, leadership on the outskirts of the metro area and stuff like that. I think there's been great leadership from that standpoint. And, you know, the police chief in, in Houston, you know, was walking or marching or protesting with the people. You know, I think there's, you know, when you have a sense of solidarity, as a city, right. Where it's like, we are working together. Now we have issues, but we're working together. I think, I think we'll see great progress in Houston. And, and as you already mentioned, like the HPD seems to be a great police department. Cause it's, you know, the training, the Academy opportunities that you have, the diverse uh, officers that, that represent the, the department. I, I think it's really a reflection on the leadership. And I think people feel that now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. But I- I think, I think, I think the people of Houston sense that. And I think no matter what side I've seen such great things from some of the most conservative people that I know to the most liberal people I know, basically just being like, look at Houston, like look what we are able to do during such a horrendous and sad and trying time. And I think that speaks volumes.
1: Well, so you think we had a, the protest that was here, a couple of days ago had 60,000 plus people.
0: It was insane. Yeah. That was um, so many people.
1: 60,000 people. I mean, social distancing, I guess <laughs> 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 didn't, didn't really happen right there, but you know, it, it was further there. It just shows that at this point people needed to be spoken. You know, they need to speak out, uh, mm-hmm. allowed, which is perfectly fine. Um, the Houston police department, we have a total of 5,300 officers, um, Chicago, which I think we're passing in population. Yeah. Right about now <laughs> in the census, they have 13,000. Wow. Um, so we are horribly understaffed. So, I mean, we're, but it doesn't seem that way when you see it on TV. I mean, yeah, I do give a lot of the credit to the leadership as far as even the people on the, the activist side, um, communicating yeah. with the law enforcement, communicating with our city and giving them an avenue to peacefully protest. Um, now with that being said, you know, we I think we, from what last thing I read, we actually arrested more people than most other cities, um, but that was our way of keeping it peaceful. We mm-hmm. identified the agitators, the people that were throwing bricks, the people that were doing everything else, and before it turned into a mob mentality, they were in custody. Yeah, that allowed the people that wanted to do this peacefully to continue. Yeah, into a chaotic scene with people, you know, breaking windows everywhere. Did we have some? Of course. I mean,
3: yeah,
1: and sixty thousand people. There is going to be people that are bad. Yeah, um, but for the most part that's not what happened. They were able to keep peacefully protesting because we were able to identify the agitators that were throwing the bricks and throwing the, you know, the bottles and throwing everything else and get them out of the crowd. Yeah. or turn into something bigger.
0: Right. <laughs> and you know, some cities look like absolute war zones yeah. and, you know, the size of Houston, one of the largest cities in the country, um most diverse. You know, you would think this could have been like a recipe for disaster, right? A lot of people that have, feel that their voices aren't being heard Um, just a lot of people in general, right, at a very charged time during, you know, the death of George Floyd. And then don't forget, we've been cooped up in our houses for three months. People have lost jobs, right? There's a lot of people are desperate. People are sad. People are fed up as well. So, you know, when I heard how big the protests in Houston could get in my mind, I was like, this could get out of control. I hope it doesn't, and, it, and it, it it seemed under control. So I was very, as a Houstonian, I was very happy to see that. And I think one of the most powerful things I saw, and I don't know if you were there for this, but the um, these black cowboys yeah, came congresses. in.
2: Yeah,
0: that was the most badass thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like one, it was like the most Houston thing ever, but it was incredibly powerful. And then, if I'm not mistaken, the police officers actually escorted them. Yeah. so they could get to where they needed to go. And so, again, that's us or you guys working together for a common resolution and for your communities. And, you know, because even though you're in law, uh, you know, an officer, you're also a member of your community. Yeah. You are one of those people. And so I don't know. That was like one of the one. It was like the most Texas thing ever. But two. <laughs> It was, it was just awesome. Like it was just such wow. a powerful and I think defining moment for the protests and everything going on. And I think it was something that the nation saw as well.
1: Well, I'm seeing that, but that also boils down to communication. And we yeah. about, that's the number one component. We knew ahead of time that they were going to do that. Yeah. And so we cleared a path for them. That's awesome. We weren't sitting there trying to stop them from doing it. Like, but we knew ahead of time, it would have, it would have put a big hampering on us if we were if it was unexpected. Yeah. Because you know, now you're adding animals into the mix and there's rushing. Yeah. <laughs> you mean that, that, that's a, that could be a recipe for trampling? Yeah. We don't want to. Yeah.
2: That. Yeah. You
1: know, but I remember actually going to work that night when they were doing that um, and hearing on the radio that they were finding the, the trailers and they were, you know, clearing out this pass and they wanted to keep them separate from the main group so that if something did pop off, the horses wouldn't get startled and start running every. I mean, like, and yeah, pop yeah. Off their riders and, you know, run over people. Like, we were yeah. ready for it. But we knew it was coming because they told us. Yeah. And so that open line of communication um, is massive um, between the activists and the police department and everything else. Yeah,
0: I loved it. I was like, I was so proud. I was like, (laughs) hell yeah, like this. This was great. And um, but, yeah, so I'm definitely happy to hear that, you know, in Houston and and for your sake and and your fellow officers, that things were rather peaceful. And um, also the people of Houston were given the ability to express themselves and have a voice. Now, I might put you on the spot a little bit, but where do we go from here? Where do you see yourself maybe going from here as, one, just a member of your community, but, two, as a member of law enforcement? How how do we kind of stick out that hand, create that bridge, get things and and change done together, and make just each other
1: better? Well, I do think, because when you're talking about, especially... Situation just as great as this when you talk about racial injustice. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a big word when you throw out there, and it's hard to legislate that because there are some evil people in this world. Yeah, yeah there are, and it's just hard to find. So, if there's eight hundred thousand police officers, if you take less or you know, half of one percent, that's four thousand police officers in the United States that are probably bad people. Yeah, uh, and that but that's the same when you talk about teachers. You talk about any profession. And if you're talking a half of one percent is the worst of it. Um, but honestly, any real change takes time. Yeah, and You're talking about a generational change. Um, the, the way everything was going 100 years ago versus the way it was going 50 years ago versus the way it's going now. When I first started, we didn't have body cameras. Now every single officer has a body camera. And we welcome them. I, mean, I yeah. know there was some pushback originally, but I'm 100% for body cams. It has yeah. saved police officers more than it's hurt them. And I say that because of all some people saying we did stuff that we really didn't do. I mean, it, go, it goes both ways.
2: Yeah.
3: Um,
1: but when you talk about actual true change, I know nobody wants to hear it, especially when you talk about anything is patience because it's going to take time. Now I'm moving up the ranks in, in my department. There's other people like me that it's, it changes mm-hmm. and the leadership changes. And when you talk about people that have different perception than the people did 40 years ago, yeah, like, I get up to a point where I can start having the influence and having the power to make a change.
0: Good point. And
1: so there will be a change and it's coming, it's going, but it's going to be gradual. There's, there's no magic switch where we can just flip it and it changes Um, because you're dealing with people. Every single person is different. Every, how one officer deals with a situation is not going to be the same as I deal with it. And I can't, you can't legislate hate or evil. You have to train, you have to be ready for it. And you've got to culturally change as far as getting, knowing that this is going to take time.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You're going to get the right people in the right positions to make the right decisions. And then also as a police department, identifying people that don't belong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like getting to the, realizing that okay, we made a we made a mistake. This person shouldn't be a police officer. You know, and getting it. We here in Houston again. I give our leadership praise. We have something called the early warning system, <laughs> where if you start noticing that the officer gets put in that, and it's basically like a secondary probation. And if they don't cut it, they're kicked out. Yeah, um, which is great. Yeah, you know, and so it's being proactive and noticing those. i don't don't say not temperament. That's not the right word, but noticing those you know red flags. You know, yeah from an early on age as an officer and everything else that this might not be, this is a recipe for disaster that gasoline, this could turn into a massive fire. Um, And so I think our leadership is doing the right thing, but that's something that we didn't have 15 years ago. Right. You know, it's in place now. And so there is constant change. You know, if you're, if you're not constantly changing, then you're not going anywhere.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I agree. (laughs) I agree.
1: I do think that our leadership is doing a good job. And I think that as you move and generations keep going and we keep moving, you'll have people in power that, or people, I say empower people in places of influence where they can actually, their voices can be heard Yeah. Um, to get the community back together. And I think yeah. they've done a great job of it. I think it's trending in the right direction. Um, I do think though, that patience is a problem. <laughs> I know I'm not a very patient person and it's just things where you want it instant gratification and you want it right now and you want to be able to snap your fingers and you know get this stuff gone but it just it's not possible right it does need to happen is conversations quick conversations yeah we can do right now um to stop it because we have body cams and if he was doing something like that on body cam you know what i mean like that it was going to get found out what he was doing
0: anyway yeah and i think
1: it's that was never the point is that that was a people problem he made that choice to do that. Yeah. It's hard to influence people's choices as much as possible. If somebody's just not going to follow the rules they're not going to follow the rules. Yeah. Um, So you can put a thousand different procedures in place, but if that person is that type of person, it's not going to follow it. uh, What are you going
0: to do? Yeah.
1: And they've got to be gone. So if there's, if you can get a a program in place to where you can tell this person is not a rule follower and they have no right being a police officer.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that's one of the issues that people really struggle with, myself included, is um, the officer had quite a few complaints and, you know, you kind of wonder why was he still allowed to
1: be well, a police and officer? And that's where um, body cams, when I said body cams now, yeah, they, they've actually helped with that because, you know, I, myself and other people, I've been, I've been complained on. I mm-hmm.
2: mean, we had,
1: and it was completely false. But every citizen has a right to make a complaint. Right. You know, um, if you want to, you can go down to the department right now and say that he cussed, you know, in uniform. He did this. You can put whatever you want and it'll just be labeled as misconduct.
2: Mm -hmm. You
1: know what I mean? Like it doesn't give you a broad thing of actually what happened there or it'll Mm -hmm. say not sustained or it'll say, you know, whatever the thing is saying. We don't know if it happened because it's just his word versus hers.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Body cams have helped that a lot. Yeah. Because now they say this officer was rude to me, he used racial slurs. He did this that, and the other, well, then we pull up the camera and none of that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but complaints are actually going down. We actually have fewer complaints now than we did before body cams mm-hmm. because of that very reason. Now mm-hmm. it's also helping us where people that are doing stuff wrong are getting caught. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, we're able and they should.
2: The
3: yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things we want to do the right thing and the officers that are here should be doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And if they, if they mess up, they need to be held accountable for it. Agreed.
0: Yeah and I think you know one thing to kind of end on accountability is I know me personally I have yet to find someone that is justifying uh George Floyd's murder likewise with you you know on the there even there's, be, none. there's none there's not a single person that is sitting here defending it and so I think we all realize the gravity of this um and and justice will be served but like you said it's going to take time and um oh. Day of reckoning coming.
1: Well, and there is, and you can kind of skip there for a second, so I didn't oh. catch it in a second. But I mean, just being an investigator, I've i've been a sergeant now for three, a little over th- almost three years.
2: Okay.
1: I'm still going to trial on stuff that I arrested back when I was an investigator.
3: Yeah. You
1: know what I mean? Like, it's it just the criminal justice system because you're talking about two attorneys and they're filing appeals and motions and it gets, keep getting pushed and pushed.
0: And a themselves. pandemic.
1: And then we had Hurricane Harvey here a couple of years ago. Yep. Had, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff going on. And so you don't realize, like, I'm going to trial now on cases from 2014. Yeah. So it just our our whole our overall criminal justice system, not just police officers, the whole thing needs kind of a revamp. And realizing what's important, what's not, you know, what it goes, it's two ends of the spectrum. When you're getting people that are put in jail for, you know. Misdemeanor crimes that are not people related. Yeah, you're also getting people that are violent felons that are getting let out on no bonds. Yeah, where are where they're not having to pay a bond a PR bond. And so there's got to be some balance there where the the actual violent ones that are caught stay in jail and the ones that don't need to be there don't go. Um, Yep. And so it's not just on the police. It's on the the district attorneys, the judges that we talked about and everything else there's got to be something where we can all sit down together yeah. and talk about this and find out the most logical thing that will make this place a better society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. And I, I really appreciate you being candid. And I also really appreciate the fact that, you know, you, you want to see your community be better, right? That, that yeah. includes you, that includes I'm law
1: enforcement. Old. Yeah. yeah. I have a four-year-old daughter. Like I, I don't want her to grow up in something worse. I want to leave this place better for her than what I got. Yeah. And, it doesn't seem like it from what we see on the media, but we are going in the right direction. But there's got to be serious conversations about how to m- keep moving forward and keep going. Yeah,
0: and I, I think, think we, we, we are. We
1: want to get yeah. better. But I know that But despite what's on the news, when I see people day in and day out and I interact with them, we are in a better place. Mm-hmm. If we can get rid of party politics and get rid of some of the stuff that is divisive in this country, I think we'd realize that we are not very far apart. On what we yeah. To each
0: other. yeah, and I and I agree and I think we kind of just witnessed though Over the last 10 days quite a few things just come to a head and and they needed to mm-hmm. And now I think we're getting to the point where it's like let's have these conversations and um And so I think these conversations are going to lead to something and you know, I think protesting and uh, f- You know using your voice is kind of that spark we need and then you know now we can sit down and have these hard conversations um of what to do better and how to make change and you know based on the people i talk to i do think like you said i think we are going in the right direction it might not feel like it right this second um but me personally i've had some very great eye opening and honest conversations where maybe I wasn't aware of something or it shifted my perspective a little bit. Um, And likewise with other people I've talked to. And so I think it's important to have the conversations and, and even me sitting down with you, like this, this has been very informative. Um, Because, you know, like you said, you don't want to just like arrest people and throw them in jail and make people's lives miserable. You want to make your community better and, and how we make our community better is how is, is we all move forward together. We all progress together.
1: On well, our legislators. I mean, they, they make yeah. it a big thing too. you know, decriminalizing or criminalizing something. And I mean, it, we all have to be in it together. And right now it feels like we're being pushed in that there has to be a you versus me. When in reality, that's not true. We are all, we can all do this together. If we just turn off, you know, Fox news, CNN, <laughs> and actually just sit down and talk, there's a lot more in common. And yeah, we all want the same thing. I can't think of a single police officer in any of my friend groups or anybody that I've taught or anybody that's worked for me that is not a good person that is not doing this for the right reasons. Good. There are, there are horrible people out there that will come in and do bad jobs. There are people that mm-hmm. make bad decisions. Um, I don't know officer the officer from Minnesota that what he made was a very bad decision, whether that's a reflection on him as his entire career or him as a person, maybe, or was that just a person that made a very bad choice and now he's going to pay for it because that was you can't do that. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that cause I don't know the man. I don't yeah. know. What's going on. I just know that the end result is what he did was wrong Yeah, and it should not have happened. Um, right. but like I said, I have, I know so many officers here and I can't think of a single one that would do anything to intentionally hurt somebody unless they were put in a position where they had to make that choice.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and so to keep being painted with that broad brush that all cops are racist or all cops are this. And it's just, it's so far from the truth that um, there's gotta be a way for us to get it out there and come together and actually have conversations and dialogues to where most people can see that we're doing this for the right reasons. Yeah. We're not here to hurt anybody. That's not anybody's goal. I can't think of a single officer that that's what they're planning to do when they get on shift is go hurt Mm -hmm. somebody. Yeah. That's just not, that's not like us. We all signed up. We signed this oath because we wanted to help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, at least in Houston, you guys are doing your best to hold people accountable Um, and, and you guys are respecting your badge and respecting the oath that you have taken. Um, but with that, you know, I, I, again, I appreciate you coming on. Like I said, the timing of this was just kind of wild. Um, I, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate the fact that, that you were willing to have kind of this vulnerable type of conversation. Um, and I guess just from, you know, here forward forward. I hope you and your department and everyone stays safe. Um, and you know, I know great things are, there's great things in Houston, but I know great things are coming for Houston, uh, just based on, you know, the conversations I'm having and, and it seems the people, the right people are in the right places to help move that needle.
1: Well, I think it can be across the United States as well. I agree. I think, you I mean, not just us, it can be everybody. Um, and it's just something that, it's almost like we need to unplug for a little bit and <laughs> just get back to phone calls and not texting to where we can actually talk to people Yeah, do keyboard wars um, back and forth about what's going on. Yeah, um, But I think there's a recipe for disaster and there's also a recipe for awesomeness. And I it's, it's going to be, it's going to be up to us to choose which one we decide to read um, and which one we decide to do.
0: Yep. And I, I think we all, for the most part want to be better and to see our communities, you know, rock, face this challenge and come out on the other side, stronger, better, more connected and um, change will happen. It just take it just takes time. As well, you mentioned,
1: it can't and it can't get skirted under the rug. It's gotta be talked right. about. hundred percent hard conversation or not, you know, pull up your big boy pants. And let's have a conversation. Let's do it. <laughs> really, let's uh, do it. Get dirty. Let's talk about it. And let's, let's figure out that we're not far apart and what we need to do better for everybody. Awesome.
0: Perfect. Well, you know, I think, I think that's a great kind of ending point, your, your message there. And um, Sergeant Donovan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm I'm really, I find myself fortunate that our mutual friend put us in contact. And uh, again, I appreciate you coming on and, and having this very timely conversation.
1: No problem. Anything you need.
0: Awesome. Well, have a good one and stay safe out there. And I'm sure we'll chat soon. All right. Bye. Yeah.